Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is just after Memorial Day in the United States, the end of May, and by the time you hear this, more than 100,000 people will have died of the COVID-19 virus, and more than 1.6 million will have been infected, probably closer to 2 million. But on Memorial Day weekend, a lot of people were out. There didn't seem to be much social distancing in some of the photos and videos we've seen from Georgia and Florida and Texas and Missouri. And it occurred to me that there's a kind of denial going on, maybe an industrial strength denial about the impact of the virus and how it should affect our lives. Industrial strength denials, of course, are a feature of modern history, uh, from climate denial to denials about tobacco and slavery and many other issues. Barbara Fries is a former uh, Minnesota assistant attorney general and a best-selling author. Uh, She is the author of a very timely new book, Industrial Strength denial. Barbara, is there some industrial strength denial going on in the United States when it comes to the virus? Well, there is certainly denial and it is certainly very powerful. It's not, I think, the classic kind of industrial strength denial that I write about where you have it, starting with a particular industry that is worried about regulation um, and, and then spreading through society, which is what we've seen with something like climate. But I think what's happened is after years and years of that kind of industrial strength denial, that has contributed to a level of skepticism and cynicism and distrust of science generally and of government regulation, certainly among a big chunk of of the American population. And that then sets the stage for uh, some very unscientific claims about this pandemic. Um, and of course, in this case, you if you're more inclined to worry about the economy than public health, there is d- definitely a profit motive that can, can wrap into it and, and can uh, make that denial deeper and stronger. In your book, you talk about ways in which sometimes denial is convenient, obviously for industrial companies and whose interests one kind of denial or other benefits them, but also for individuals. Do you think that's going on in in the coronavirus world, that we are conveniently denying its impact because we simply don't want to stay at home? Well, I I tend to see a lot of denial in a a lot of what we think. I mean, there is a, a 
somewhat old-fashioned view, I think, that our default position is objective and that we, you know, sometimes that gets corrupted by bias. I think it's much more likely the case that our attitude toward all kinds of things and particularly uncertain things uh, is very much shaped by our self-interest and by particularly our tribalism. So when something like this comes along, uh, first of all, it's scary. So we have an incentive to deny it. It is uncertain. Uh, we, we prefer certainty. And, and so trying to find a way to try to make sense of it is important to us. But I think it, it triggers our pre-existing tribalism and, and biases. So if you don't believe in the warnings that government gives you, then you're going to think this is overblown, particularly. And and if, in fact, you are inclined to accept those kinds of warnings, then you will accept these and, and might even uh, see them as, as more extreme than they are. We're getting a very mixed message on the virus in terms of our behavior from the Trump administration. Um, is that a, a, a typical feature of industrial strength denial, uh, this kind of mixed message? No one quite knows what to believe. Sometimes the president says one thing and then the next day he says something quite different. Or is Trump himself such an outlier, such a weird figure in, 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 in politics that, he, that there aren't really any equivalents in terms of your research? Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to find an equivalent to uh, Donald Trump. I, I would say he's an outlier. I mean, when I looked at all of these other industries and the denial that they offered up regarding the, the damage that they were causing, they were never being quoted by the president. And for the most part, it wasn't a mixed message. It was a very straightforward message. But what where I think there's a similarity here is that when you are denying, say, climate change or you're denying, um, well, and actually climate change is one case where they have been quoted by the president. But, but for example, we never saw a president deny tobacco was, was harmful, uh, for example. But when you are denying those kinds of dangers, you don't need to prove those dangers aren't there. All you need to do is raise doubts about them. And if the president does that, if he can just raise doubts, that is enough to create a certain level of paralysis and to prevent people from taking action. So I think there's a real similarity there between the way people react to the mixed messages from the White House regarding COVID and the way the public reacted to the messages from industry regarding regulating their products. Uh, your book has, I think, eight eight different chapters on eight separate industrial strength denials. The one that really caught my eye, and I think most people's eye, would be slavery. Mm. How, how does the history of slavery tie in to your arguments about industrial strength denials? Well, I think we can point to that as really the first and in some ways the worst of of all the denials, um, there, I want to be clear, I focused on the slave trade in Britain uh, because it was particularly egregious in terms of their denials because the British public didn't have any way of seeing what was really going on in terms of the plantations, for example, uh, or 
certainly the the slave ships. So um, Britain dominated the slave trade in the late 1700s, and there was a very effective abolition movement that challenged it that was very focused on the actual facts of, of how brutally the slaves were treated. And there was then a very organized defense by the slave lobby, which was both the traders, the people who went to Africa to get the, the people and enslave them, and those who owned the sugar plantations in the West Indies, who then bought the slaves and used them. Um, and so that led to uh, a very organized defense that really, I think, we can point to as the extreme of what a lucrative industry is capable of denying. How does this sort of underline the depravity or the, of, of, of human nature that uh, industrial companies or for-profit companies would essentially manipulate public opinion for profit to justify slavery? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it certainly makes it clear how extremely uh, deeply into denial they can go. And, and the slave trade, it was a little bit... Um, more extreme than you'd see in some of these other things because the trade was so distant and they could make up completely alternative realities about slaves who wanted to be purchased and who enjoyed the pleasant trip across the Atlantic singing and dancing and who had a really comfortable life on the plantations. Um, Those sorts of very extreme denials are not something that you would see most industries try simply because they couldn't get away with it. This This was sort of unique. But we did also see surrounding that lots of other kinds of denials that appear in subsequent industries like, um, for example, just trying to change the subject to something else. So if you're worried about conditions for the slaves, they would say to the British public, you should really be worried about poor Britons because they're you know, lacking homes altogether. At least our slaves have a cozy little cottage, that sort of distraction. They used euphemism. They insisted, one writer suggested, let's not even use the word slave. Let's use the word property. Um, They used nationalism, arguing that if they were to get rid of their own trade, that France would take over and and then Britain would become a slave of France. Um, So a lot of those techniques that are less extreme than just completely denying reality, but but are more spin, uh, we saw those happening again and again again in other industries. Uh, Your last book before Industrial Strength Denial was about coal, and you have a particular interest, I think, and expertise in climate denial. Uh, Several of your your chapters touch on this. How how does climate denial broadly fit into your industrial strength denial argument? Well, let me maybe give you a little background here. I I was an assistant attorney general in Minnesota, and my job was helping implement and enforce environmental laws. We had a proceeding in the mid-90s where we were trying to quantify the cost of uh, generating electricity, which we got from coal. So we looked at climate change. And it led to this giant proceeding, and the coal industry intervened and brought witnesses to our state to testify that we did not have to worry about climate change. It was not going to happen. Or if it did, it would be mild and pleasant. And all those scientists um, around the world saying otherwise were basically biased. So that proceeding was really my first introduction to this this issue and to the science behind it. And it was 
it was pretty shocking. And it got me really thinking about uh, denial as this very powerful social phenomenon, corporate denial in particular, or industrial denial. Um, and, and so that is what got me wondering, well, where else has this phenomenon taken society? And how did we get beyond it if we did? Uh, and, and what specifically did other industries say in response to evidence, compelling evidence that they were causing harm? So that's what sparked my curiosity. Then I went back and looked at all of these other industries, including the slave trade, as we've talked about, and then several industries throughout the 20th century. And what I see are a lot of similarities in terms of how industries respond. Um, what I also see is that it's it's easy to do this and, and to keep your industry going, continue to do the harmful activity for decades, um, while other forces in society sort of finally get it together, independent scientists, media starts to pay attention, some politicians start to pay attention. Eventually, society gets to the point where they pass a law and try to regulate this sort of behavior. But it takes a very long time. And with climate change, it is taking um, a, a dangerously long time because, of course, we, we just don't have that much time left now to make the very deep changes we need to, to make to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and avoid this, uh, having this totally spin out of control. I sense, though, an element of optimism in your book. You suggest we're reaching a tipping point in climate politics, or you hint at that. Um, is it really about just fighting what I guess you would consider the lies of the fossil, of the fossil fuel industry, or is it a more complicated battle? Well, I think it is about power and, and other segments of society trying to overcome the, the power of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, to the extent it's about the lies, you know, I think we're almost to the point now where that has been overcome in terms of most members of the public. They they no longer think this is a hoax. There's widespread concern, certainly among young people, um, and even among Republicans who have been the most uh, the most likely to dismiss this in the past and the most open to uh, climate denial. Um, but what happens is if, you, if you're an industry and you have been denying something for a very, very long time, you can put in place barriers to regulation, political barriers, social barriers. So even though now climate change, the climate crisis is much more likely to be accepted, say, by rank and file Republicans, it is still not reflected in their elected officials or obviously the White House. So you've got this sort of political force that has blocked action. Um, I, I still think the the denial is something worth addressing, not to persuade the industries to change their minds, because I don't expect that to either happen in, in many cases or matter in other cases, but to help mobilize society and, and help overcome this residue of denial that has been built up over many years. The Dow Jones index now is made up, I think 25% of it is made up of Silicon Valley companies, mm -hmm. uh, digital media companies, uh, internet companies. Um, and yet in the eight, um, in, in your eight chapters, there's nothing about technology. I wonder if you were to write a ninth chapter, whether you might add something about surveillance capitalism and the way in which technology seems to be destroying our privacy. 
oh, I, I think that would be a fascinating thing to, to look at. And I wouldn't stop there. I mean, when it comes to big tech, uh, you know, it isn't, it isn't just the surveillance, but the algorithms that seem to make people more and more extreme. And, and just the fact that disinformation can spread so fast and, and stay alive for so long. Um, I, I think it's both a, an example of denial on, in its own sake as an industry, but it is also an industry that makes denial easier for so many other industries that uh, I think it's very much a part of this. So yes, maybe, maybe the next book. Uh, and perhaps also in the next book, you might have something on what, what some people at least would believe is the, the biggest lie of all, uh, the meta lie, which is about capitalism uh, and the way in which it gives opportunity for everyone, given the, way, given the way in which we live in an increasingly unequal society. And, and I think that's been compounded during the, uh, the coronavirus crisis. Is the ultimate industrial strength denial the one about capitalism and opportunity? Hmm. You know, I... I'm not sure I would go that far. The way I think about capitalism is that it has, you know, all kinds of benefits and some very powerful uh, downsides and that we need government to step in to correct the downsides. And every now and then, as a society, we do step forward and, and try to change things um, and for example, during the New Deal, where we really reacted with some very important laws that, that helped a lot, and in the post-war era, where we put in place all kinds of consumer laws and, and all kinds of uh, environmental laws, obviously. Um, now we've got enormous problems associated with capitalism, and including so much in, in the technolo technology realm, including um, inequality of wealth, of course, including climate change. And we're seeing uh, a lot more uh, dissatisfaction with capitalism. So that's part of what makes me think maybe we are on the cusp of a new era uh, or close to a tipping point where there is a you know, an, enough people who really want to make some fundamental changes in how we address capitalism and, and recognize that markets, there's just so much that they cannot do uh, and that we need government to do and we need a, a government that's really focused on data and science. And I'm hoping, of course, that this pandemic might have a silver lining in, in helping people realize the importance of good government uh, and the limitations of markets, because this is just not a problem that the marketplace can solve. And we've been told for, for decades um, by the more libertarian side of, of the polit political spectrum that markets can solve pretty much all the problems and, and trying very, very hard to minimize government involvement. Um, obviously, my book would, would increase government involvement and, and focuses on trying to solve the problems that the market causes. Barbara, you began your career in the 80s working for the great activist, uh, Ralph Nader. I know Ralph a little bit, and he's quite a character. He was, of course, the person who led the fight against the, the car industry. Uh, Unsafe at Any Speed was an incredibly influential book. Is ultimately the best way to fight industrial strength denial through charismatic figures like Ralph Nader, who will essentially dedicate their lives to fighting these lies, these destructive mistruths and untruths? Well, I think that um, 
charismatic characters are are probably a necessary part of this um, that that they are very helpful in getting social movements and in, in getting media attention um, and ultimately in getting the laws in place that we that we need to to oversee these industries um, you know I again as a as a lawyer I tend to think in terms of the laws but but also the problem with relying on charismatic individuals or even on on social movements is that social movements tend to lose their their focus and move on to something else whereas corporations uh, you know they can be immortal industries certainly seem to last forever and they have institutionalized their denial they've institutionalized what they do so i think we need to institutionalize um well, agencies that that can monitor them and pay attention to them. So I, I see this as, you know, we need charismatic figures paying attention. We need media figures paying attention. We need good independent journalism, good independent science. We sometimes need lawsuits. We ultimately need laws and agencies to enforce them. Finally, Barbara, you're stuck inside like all of us in your home in Minnesota. I'm sure you've been doing a lot of reading. In addition to your excellent new book, Industrial Strength Denial, what should people be reading? Should they be rereading Ralph Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed, or are there other books that they might read during the crisis? It'd be interesting to reread uh, Unsafe at Any Speed, but but I'd also actually just point to one that's sitting on my desk right now. It's been out for a couple of years, but I think it's a really important uh, book to help explain politics in, in the U.S. right now, and that's Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money. Um, the subtitles: The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Um, I, I think it's very helpful in part in helping understand how climate denial went from the industry via some billionaires, in, including the Koch brothers, uh, to the Tea Party, and then sort of transformed itself into what looks like this kind of grassroots and populist opposition to regulating climate change. Um, that is, I think, fading away right now, but it's still a, a really important history. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.